Namaste and welcome back. So tonight, um, this is a continuation of the series that we're doing, um, Lessons from Lockdown. And what we're doing is, is looking at the kind of things that we experienced and, and other people experienced and trying to draw lessons from them. The experience itself is not necessarily the lesson, but how we should respond to things, how we should um, deal with things, how we should process situations is really what the lessons are that we need to develop. So tonight, um, this might be a little bit on the strong side for some people, and I apologize in advance if it's a little um, might be a little bit distressful, but it's only distressful if we look at things from a certain perspective. And what this is all about is developing a really healthy perspective and strong foundation to face things in life. <clears throat> so la last week we mentioned about, you know, people's observations of all these huge environmental changes that people are noticing or, or witnessing due to, you know, quite, quite severe lockdown. And in cities particularly that were very polluted and everything, just the way everything changed so much, so radically in such a very short period of time. And of course, it, it, it leads one to consider mm, obviously, you know, there is this concern about the environment. And we have a whole environmental movement seeking to to bring about change. And um, I'll, I'll make a couple of points uh, in that regard. One has to do with what is it that we're seeking and whether we are applying the appropriate means or solutions that really address the, the core issues that uh, get to the heart of things. So um, I'm kind of titling the talk, Greed Over Need, How to Wreck a Planet. And, you know, this is not really an exaggeration. And, and if we really contemplate on, on that title, Within it lies the problem and, of course, the, the solutions that we need to, to draw on. So we've seen over the last particularly, you know, 15 to 20 years, this rise in, in environmental concern. But I will put it to you that many of the changes that people may be making in their life like recycling and, you know, trying to switch to electric vehicles or whatever, alternate 
sort of energy that um, these things are really good and are really, really important. They're really important because they, they, they bring a, a, a change in, in focus and it's an, it's a, we're evaluating our life and trying to live more responsibly. And that's, that's all fantastic. But I do put it to you that simply trying to, for instance, adopt more sustainable energy um, solutions is not really an actual solution. The, the, the problem is our value system and our lives and the way that we're living and simply looking to find new ways to fuel these, this lifestyle is not really addressing the problem. So uh, some at the beginning of lockdown, I got a somebody sent me an, a link to an article that was actually really, really interesting. It was written by this guy, John Halstead, uh, back in in beginning of April. And it was titled, Why I Stopped Protesting and Started a Garden. And it was kind of like, what? <laughs> you know? Um, so he talked about how he became very, you know, motivated about five years ago. And um, so he, he joined the ranks of, you know, the environmental protesters. He said it was, I was raising my voice, raising awareness and raising hell. So he was, you know, connected with people that would do these protests that really, you know, get people's attention. He says, five years later, I'm done. I'm done marching, done mobilizing, I'm done. It was fun while it lasted. <laughs> and he said, the practical need to change my own habits and actions, you know, he, he started talking about that because, you know, when people are, are actively engaged in environmentalism, seeking to create a better planet, a better quality of life for themselves and for everyone, that unless they make some really substantial personal changes, then it's practically all for naught. It was the conclusion that he came to, that it was not really sustainable. You can't keep up that level of protesting without yourself undergoing some really major changes. So he decided to start a whole movement on, on backyard gardening and community gardening, and he got everybody into it. And, you know, his focus became kind of like, you know, local focus, because this is where you can actually do something, and this is where your life can begin to, to change. And in the beginning of the article, he had a um, quote from Bill Mollison, Hope I've said that right. The Australian guy that um, came up with with permaculture as an agricultural system, 
um, that was built on, you know, real sustainability and, and permanence. And in this quote that he used, he sa- Bill says, the greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. The greatest change that we need to make is from consumption to production, even if it's on a small scale in our own gardens. If only 10% of us do this, this is enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system that they attack and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. I, I was quite um, moved by by that statement, that observation, and that is something that's grown out of, of you know, a lifetime of practical activism, meaning you know, in, in one's personal life. And I, I'll I'll make a quote in a short while from um, <clears throat> the famous um, author and economist in England, um, E. F. Schumacher, and um, he he wrote a really well-known book in the seventies, "Small is Beautiful." Uh, he was he went to Burma uh, as part of a group that was acting as consultants for the the Burmese government um, because Burma used to be formerly a, a British um, territory, part of the British Empire. And um, so there were there were strong ties and he went there to advise them on on uh, the development of, of their economy. And he was introduced to Buddhism. And he saw a, a whole people that were living a different life and with different values. And it utterly shocked him and moved him, so much so that his, his life completely transformed as a result of it. And when he returned to England, um, he used to, for instance, grind his own flour by hand on a stone mill to make his own bread. These were the kind of things that he was doing in his own life. Um, he, he was a person of, of, you know, of wealth and, and position in society, but he chose to adopt a very, you know, quite simple lifestyle because of, of what really moved him. But before we mention his quote, we're going to look at a, a something that was written by a quote by Gus Speth. Gus Speth, he was, he's an American environmental lawyer and an environmental advocate. He was formerly the dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And he was the former administrator of the United Nations Development Program. And he said something like really startling. I, I was very moved to, to read you know, his observation. So he states, I used to think that top environmental problems were biodiversity or the loss of biodiversity, Econ, uh, the ecosystem collapse, 
and climate change. So these three items. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists do not know how to do that. So I'll, I'll when I post this uh, talk, I'll, I'll put the quotes there. Um, they're very much worth contemplating upon. You know, he correctly identified what was really at the heart of the problem. And the points that he's making, one of the reasons I'm, I'm using this as a springboard or a, a starting point for this series of talks is because a lot of the personal and societal and planetary problems that we're facing actually arise from people's, the consciousness that they have and the value system that has been adopted. And simply changing and, you know, to another type of fuel, something that's more so-called sustainable, etc., is, is not going to address this, this underlying problem, which is deeply personal. We shouldn't look at it as a societal problem. It's the individuals within society. And so if, if I want to see an improvement in the world, if I want to see an improvement in the way societies are dealing with each other and everything, it, it has to start with me. It has to start with me in, in my life. Um, you know, there's this new environmental movement. Um, what do they call it? Um, the extinction movement. They've got a short term for it. And, and, you know, people have been doing all of these radical protests, closing down bridges and roads and everything, trying to bring people's attention. And I, I was interviewed by a, a friend um, from Australia when she was over here in New Zealand a little while back. And she was talking to me about these problems. She had a, a real interest in them. And my question to her was, well, the people that are leaving, leading these movements, the people that are chaining themselves to buildings or bridges and blocking off, and how many of them are actually substantially changing our lifestyles. I mean, everybody still uses these personal devices, the phones and everything. Everybody's, you know, engaged in a lifestyle that is so dependent upon technologies that are dependent upon resources that really are creating havoc in the planet. Then you had, you know, Jeff Bezos recently, you know, he's making this big proclamation about the, the 
real need, the real need for interplanetary travel and why mankind needs to be in space. And he said fundamentally is that, you know, our lifestyle here cannot be sustained, both in terms of the energy requirement and the output of of pollution. And so we need to go, you know, interplanetary in order to solve that problem. And it's just like, are you listening to what you're saying? Are you actually hearing what you're saying? You know, the problem is is not needing more energy and bigger holes to dump the pollution in or to, you know, take all the carbon monoxide and dioxide and then try to bury it somehow, sequester it into the earth. Is, is why are we doing all of this anyway? What are, we, what are we doing it for? You know, this was one of the big shocks that a lot of people had when they you know, went into lockdown. A lot of people started feeling really lonely and, and having difficulty, you know, feeling purposeless and kind of really disoriented. And we should think about that. Why is it? Why is it? that when I have all these things going on around me, when they are removed, it's like nothing left. It means I have no permanent and real internal life. I have become so caught up in that which is external and which is temporary and which is passing. And I consider my absorption in that which is temporary, fleeting, and passing to be my life. And if that is what your life is, then you are in a very precarious situation. And it points to the absolute absence of any real spiritual content in my life. As I've mentioned so many times before, we are eternal spiritual beings. These bodies that we have on are not us. They will age. They will die. I will move on. This is not my home. This is not, there is nothing permanent about it. And yet I seek permanence. I desire permanence. I feel security. I feel there will be happiness and permanence. And, and that's fundamentally true. That, that's where it does lie. What's going on, though, is I'm just so absorbed in all the stuff around me, all of the noise and din, the clutter and the flashing lights and everything that's going on in order to actually distract my attention from this gaping hole I have in my heart, this emptiness that is there. And so, you know, you had this, I mean, in in America, there was a 55% increase in alcohol consumption during lockdown. People were taking alcohol and, and other forms of drugs. Internet usage went off the roof. Everybody's just constantly absorbed in in movies like this is where you're just surrendering your mind surrendering your heart offering your life over to that which cannot 
all it can do is distract you. It doesn't actually fill a need, a need that is there. And then we're, so we've developed these appetites for endless consumption and an appetite for increased or endless, but even increased consumption is categorically nothing less than greed, the desire for more, more and more and more, and then just consuming for the sake of consuming. And one of the things that you see, it's just like all this craziness around the world, this, you know, preoccupation with getting the, the economy back on track. And it's sort of like the way it is with technology. You know, am, am I using technology or am I being used by technology? Is the economy serving me or am I becoming a servant of, of the economy? These are really deep questions that really need some serious consideration. And of course, it all goes back to, to things that we've spoken about before, you know, particularly in the, in the early 20th century when modern consumer economics was developed as, as the, the model that needed to be embraced. And even though individuals did this with a good intention, they relied upon tools, things that would actually cause um, harm to, to human beings. So this brings me to um, the quote I have here from, from Schumacher. And, and I state again that he was an economist. But he, after this visit and time spent in Burma, it made him reflect upon his life, upon his value system, the things that he held to be true, and made him question everything. So it, he had stated in one of his writings this observation about how um, uh, Keynes, the economist, had spoken about the need to, to actually stimulate both envy and greed. And uh, envy and greed then become the powerhouse to really drive people towards um, economic development. And he said that when the economies develop, everybody will become happier and there was this fundamental idea that people would end up with more leisure time and more wealth to use in that leisure time. And as a result, the quality of life would become better. But um, Schumacher observed that there will be three things that will be sacrificed in this quest. One is health. The other one is beauty. And the third is peacefulness. And he said they will become sacrificed because they have no economic value within this paradigm. And so uh, the stimulation of, of greed and envy 
will become this this powerhouse. So he states, the modern economy is propelled by a frenzy of greed and indulges in an orgy of envy. And these are not accidental features, but are the very causes of its expansionist success. The question is whether such causes can be effective for long or whether they carry within themselves the seeds of destruction. And it's absolutely mind-blowing to, to read this and to read it within the context of where we are going. And if we think about it in, in, in a bigger way, I mean, I, what I'm trying to ask people to do is to really step back from their life and begin to look at things a bit deeper and see what it is that's really driving me, what is it that's making me feel the way I do, what is causing you know, these feelings of, of emptiness, of lack of fulfillment, of insecurity, um, when particularly, you know, when we're faced with, with something on the scale of this pandemic or any other sort of natural, natural calamity. So uh, the point I just wanted to try and establish here is that we need to start really looking at our personal. Don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry about pointing the finger or evaluating on anyone else. We can observe. Sure, we can observe if we can learn from it. But what we observe needs to be applied to my myself on a, on a personal level. What is it that I need to be doing that's going to bring a change? that is going to make my life purposeful, that's going to make it rich and rewarding, no matter what happens around me, no matter what I am subjected to, even my own death. What is it that I am going to do that makes my life successful, that makes it actually rewarding? We understand from the Vedic teachings that the actual purpose of human life is self-realization. To realize your spiritual identity, how you are an eternal spiritual being separate from this body, and to reestablish our connection with this higher spiritual reality and truth, um, particularly with the Supreme Soul, that this is the actual purpose of human existence. And when that becomes the central purpose that we are focused on and what we are cultivating, then it permeates our life, it permeates our choices, it permeates our decisions on what will be courses of actions that we will adopt. It completely reestablishes a different sort of value system, different perhaps than what I had previously. It helps me organize the hierarchy of priorities in my life, of what's really important, what's really valuable.
And you'll find that when a person begins this process of spiritual cultivation, they do become kinder. They do live a more gentle life. Their footprints become lighter. That they are able to weather storms. They are able to go through adversity and difficulty without it absolutely rocking them to their foundation. There will be so many positive things that that come out of it. So this is really what, what we, you know, what should become increasingly apparent to us, that these problems that we face individually and as a society, these are problems that are spiritual in nature. There is an underlying spiritual problem. There may be a manifestation of material symptoms, but they are symptoms. And we should, like good doctors, utilize the the symptoms to um, analyze and identify what is the underlying disease or problem. And then what happens is our life and our lifestyle, our choices, the way we're going to live, everything, uh, our priorities, the things that we engage in on a daily level start becoming things that actually don't address the symptoms as much as address the actual problem. And when the underlying problem has been addressed, the symptoms just naturally begin to gradually fade and, and, and disappear. If, on the other hand, we, we simply run after the symptoms trying to address them without addressing the underlying problem, which is what I say is one of the biggest problems facing the environmental movement, you won't come up with a real solution. You may extend the usable life of the planet. You may, uh, you know, extend certain things, but you're not actually going to address the the real problems. So uh, please really do take some time to contemplate and consider this reality because it's like incredibly important. And I'll leave you with a final quote from Mahatma Gandhi, who says that earth provides enough to satisfy every man's need, but not every man's greed. That's an incredibly profound reality. And I would really, you know, ask you to really try to consider these things, reflect on them. You use this time. I mean, we're not over here in New Zealand, you know, today they we've gone to level two. Everybody's uh, pretty much back to work in modified workspaces and, and everything. So there is this feeling of, okay, we're, we're getting back to where we were before. But it, my, my, I'm questioning whether it is desirable to be back to where we were before. Or should we not slow down a little bit and contemplate and consider? Is there a higher, more important lessons to learn?
lessons that are deeply personal. Don't worry about others. Myself, what are the changes that I need to make in my life? Because when I undergo these changes, when my life becomes more inherently spiritual in character, I will have a profound effect, perhaps gradual in a lot of cases, but a profound effect upon others, other people that I am connected to, other people that know me, other people that I come to meet in this journey through this this lifetime. And my entire life and even my death itself will become something that others will learn from. And this way, we have a more lasting and a more important, a more permanent impact on society as a whole. So just like the guy that gave up protesting and started backyard gardening movement, you know, that's a fantastic lesson. And we need to apply that type of reality. We need to think local. We need to look at our own lives and begin the process. And of course, we know that the foundational activity that's going to bring this kind of change is this process of meditation upon the spiritual sounds, these transcendental sounds, these names that actually bring about a purification of the heart and mind that make it so that we become less enslaved by our passions and our anxieties and our mind. And the word mantra means to actually free oneself from the influence or the grip that the mind and, and the emotions and all these things have over us, the, the spiritual being. And this makes it so we can be more dispassionate, that we can live a more temperate life, a modest life. So thank you very, very much. And, um, you know, going forward, we're going to start looking at some of these, you know, what were often referred to as, as virtues that we need to actually begin to also consciously cultivate because it is through making conscious choices to act in certain ways and to cultivate certain qualities that it helps us to internalize and begin to live a more spiritual truth, a more spiritual reality. And so the, this chanting process is the, is the foundation. So I'm going to chant Om Hari Om, and then perhaps partway in we'll chant um, Hari Bol Nitai Gaur Mantra using the same melody.
Oh. 